The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information on Shiloh Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at shilohopc.org. Okay, all right, so just to kind of orient you to where we're at, um, where I'm at is running behind. So I'm going to try to speed up a little bit today. Uh, I have up here a map of the frontier and the settled areas of America in the year 1800, and that's just about where we're at. Last time we were together, we talked about the first General Assembly of the PCUSA, which was held in, in 1780. Does anybody know? 1789. Okay. Um, and so this is just a few years later, and you can see the state of things up to this point. I can, I can get out of the way here. This This darker red area is generally considered settled territory or areas of settlement. And you can see this splotch over here in Kentucky, that's going to be particularly important today, as well as these areas in in New York, upstate New York, and they're at the edge of Pennsylvania. And you can see the country is continuing to move west. And with the country, uh, the Presbyterian Church, uh, maybe not as successfully as they would have liked to have, uh, but they continue to move West as well, and that's really the context for much of what we'll uh, think about this morning. As we've noted before, American Presbyterianism really originates in the middle colonies on the eastern seaboard, so states like Delaware, Maryland, to a certain extent uh, Virginia, but particularly Pennsylvania, uh, Long Island. Uh, these are the areas where Presbyterianism really gets its footing in the United States, and then it begins very slowly. Uh, to make its way further and further west. We've talked some uh, about North Carolina, and so in that context we've talked a little bit about the Great Wagon Road and uh, how immigration actually happened into North Carolina, which if you remember was down from Pennsylvania through the Shenandoah Valley into the middle, the Piedmont area of North Carolina and even at the very beginning of the mountains of North Carolina. And from there, some went down further to South Carolina and Georgia, and then some chose to to go west through the passes in the Appalachian Mountains uh, over into Kentucky, areas of Tennessee, and places like this. So as these things, uh, or as, uh, as the country continues to progress west and Presbyterians go west, uh, Presbyterianism begins to take upon itself perhaps its most enthusiastic form Uh, which really it will have in American Presbyterianism until the charismatic movement hits. Um, This error that we're getting into is considered what we typically talk about as the Second Great Awakening. So does anybody know anything about the Second Great Awakening? (laughs) Everyone knows something about the Second Great Awakening, yes. Um, Generally, we we have a, a fairly positive view of the First Great Awakening. This is typical. And then we, we have a, a slightly more negative or maybe a, a, a lot more negative uh, view of the, of the Second Great Awakening. Uh, there are some people who would like to call them the Pretty Good Awakenings. Um, that's valid. I mean, there are, there are certainly a mixture of things going on. Even in the First Great Awakening, there are excesses. But by the time we get to the Second Great Awakening, the excesses are not the exception. They become the rule. And that's when things really get rather strange, uh, as in particular Presbyterians move out west. So here's a typical scene uh, that you may have encountered uh, on the frontier. 
Now, who here is familiar with the communion season? Okay, okay. All right, good. Uh, David, could you give us a brief explanation of a communion season? Right. Yeah, so correct. So, And this is particularly a practice that develops in Scottish Presbyterianism. And so um, our friends, for instance, in the Free Church of Scotland continuing um, would still practice uh, this, this type of communion season. So what happens is uh, you'll have, say, two or three days that are set aside. Usually there's a guest preacher. Usually it's a prominent guest preacher, someone who's known for being a very able uh, and experiential a preacher who comes and he preaches the word for a time of preparation to take the sacraments. And it's at that point then, at the very last day, or perhaps on the second to last day, depending on how they do it, um, that everybody will come together and, and take communion. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So the, this is something that would have happened twice a year. The, the practice became in Scotland to have many communion seasons, like a one minister might hold two a year, for instance, but then they would invite people from different congregations to come, and so you would tend to have much larger attendance at a communion season than you would have had, say, at your normal church service. So th- why do I bring up communion seasons? I bring up communion seasons because it's in the context of Presbyterian communion seasons uh, that something very interesting begins to happen. Um, So we've talked before about Barton Stone and James McGreedy. Uh, These are two fellas who are closely associated with North Carolina Presbyterianism. Both of them are in some way, shape, or form North Carolinians from the western part of North Carolina, the area around uh, Yatkinville, if you're familiar with that, that area of North Carolina, western North Carolina, before you get to the mountains. Um, and, and they served there at various times. So James McGreedy comes first. Uh, he was a pastor actually at one point in Orange County, and, and Tim had mentioned previously that it was in Orange County, North Carolina, I believe in the, in the 1790s, where McGreedy was basically ran out of town and certainly ran out of his pulpit. This is a fellow, if you remember, whose pulpit had uh, blood, you know, somebody came and wrote in blood on it, basically saying, look, you need to change the way you're preaching. And then they also burnt his pulpit. They, like, took it out of the church and burnt it. Um, I've seen some nasty church fights. I've never seen anybody do that. Um, I'm not saying it'll never happen, but uh, I haven't seen it yet. Um, So at some point, though, McGreedy, uh, during his preaching, and during the course of one of his communion seasons, uh, a great revival breaks out. And when we mean revival here, we mean, well, let's see. Who, who grew up in revivalism? Is there anybody who could say? Has anybody been to a church where they had an altar call? Okay, there we go. Yeah, Maybe you didn't grow up in it. I grew up in it. So, you know, the church I grew up in, it's an odd church. kind of Calvinistic, but also very revivalistic. So, you know, I remember the 107th verse of I Surrender All with every high close and every hand raised, that kind of thing. That's the kind of stuff that begins to develop under the preaching of men like James McGreedy. Now, this had happened up north as well. 
But this one is very interesting because McGreedy, in the course of one of his uh, revivals, uh, a man is converted, and his name is is Barton Stone. And Barton Stone, as Tim had mentioned uh, previously, would go on to be uh, very important in Kentucky and one of the major founders of what became the Stone-Campbell movement, which gives us the Disciples of Christ, the Christian Church, things like this. what's known as the Restorationist Movement. Does anybody know what the Restorationist Movement is trying to do? Tim said it the other day, so maybe somebody remembers it. Maybe Tim remembers it, if nothing else. They're trying to restore the church to its like primitive form, right? So what they're trying to do is they're trying to wipe away all the things that they see as accretions to the church and return it back to its most pure, early form. Interestingly, to connect what we've already seen in American Presbyterianism to this, one of the major things that they reject is creedal subscription. Okay? So this has been a strand in American Presbyterianism for a very long time. I actually went back, Dick uh, was asking me last week about Jonathan Dickinson, and, and it you know, he, I don't know if you remember this, but you made the comment, it's very strange to think of Presbyterians, you know, rejecting creedal subscription altogether. So I went and I was like, you know, I really hope I don't have this wrong. <laughs> so I went back and I, I read some of Jonathan Dickinson's work. It's remarkable. I mean, he, he makes a statement at one point about the fact that the Council of Nicaea is a schismatic event. This is a, this is a guy who went on to be a, the president of Princeton College. I mean, so anyway, so the, the, the seed of this kind of thought has been there for a while, but this is maybe the most extreme version of it. And it comes, as you would expect, out of revivalistic preachers. So the same emphases that you saw in the First Great Awakening with men who were trying to preach to the conscience, which is not a bad thing. I think it's very important, actually. But that desire to preach experientially eventually led them to, to maybe drop the doctrine and the order and all of that stuff and go full-on experience, if you will. And this is one of the places where we're going to see that. And if you've been involved in a communion season, uh, you know that that can be something that happens there. I don't, David's, I don't know if he's paying attention here. But right, I mean, this is, it's very emotional. It can be, right? I mean, it, it, protracted meetings have that effect on people. Matter of fact, I've watched some communion seasons uh, in Scotland and trying to be charitable with my friends because um, I do have good friends who believe very firmly in communion seasons. But, um, you know, I grew up in revivalism and I kind of know a revival when I see it. <laughs> and you can feel the emotions. You can see how these things are, are, are related. You know, you can see how it works that one develops into the other and you, you end up with these um, really interesting events, such as the Cane Ridge Revival. So Cane Ridge Revival happens in, in 1800, and this is a revival that was uh, involved, uh, or that Barton Sp- uh, Stone was holding uh, once he had moved over into Kentucky. At this point, he's still a Presbyterian minister. Uh, it, this is the time where he begins to invite Methodist and Baptist preachers to come in together with him. And so this would have been not only a very emotional thing, but it would have been a very ecumenical thing. Um, so many people from different types of backgrounds. You have Baptist preachers, Methodist preachers. Uh, you had lay preachers. That We're going to see that later. This is the movement which spawns um, women preaching in churches for the first time, really. Uh, 
That's right. Revival and Revivalism. I'm glad you said that. I'll, I'll plug it now. It's an excellent book. Uh, Murray is perhaps more gracious in some ways to the First Great Awakening than, than I have been. Um, but generally, I think it's an excellent book. And um, Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. He lays all this out very nicely and shows how the desire for something that was very good, which is to see an outpouring of the Spirit, devolved into something that became very strange and, and eventually very bad. Um, so here we have Cane Ridge. At Cane Ridge, uh, communion season is taking place, and, and these protracted meetings are happening, and people begin to experience strange phenomena. Uh, so, for instance, people began to fall to the ground. Uh, people began to cry out. Now, there was some crying out in the first Great Awakening. The difference between this and that is in the first Great Awakening, when someone would cry out, oftentimes the minister would stop them. They would actually stop and say, stop that, <laughs> which must have been really awkward uh, <laughs> for the preacher, too. Uh, but anyway, not a, so, but one, one, one writer reports that he's present at this, and um, in unison, while the preaching of the word is happening, 500 people fall down at one time. And he says it's like a cannonball cut through the crowd and just knock people over. This particular writer was scared to death by this. He actually ran away into the woods uh, to get away from it, uh, which, being a Southerner, I have to tell you a story now about my, my, uh, my own experiences with revivalism. I had a cousin who was taken to a small Pentecostal church and, uh, near my house, and um, one Sunday morning he calls me in the afternoon. He says, Matthew, you've got to come and get me. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, these people have broken out into what they're calling holy laughter. And they had scared my cousin to death. I mean, he had goose pimples. He was, he was not ready for what he experienced in that church. But th- these are the kinds of things that were starting to happen then. You know, strange displays of emotion, people rolling on the floor. Presbyterianism. There you go. So, um, it's true. I mean, these are, these are some of the, the people who were driving forces behind it were, you know, they were, they were in our lineage, as it were. So Cane Ridge becomes um, something of a high watermark for this style of revivalism, and, and people begin to desire to replicate this. And, and we'll see that come to its culmination later in a, in a figure by the name of Charles Finney, right, which I'm sure many of you are, are familiar with. But to stay, um, to stay chronological as well as to move on, oh, here we go. I have this wonderful picture of all the founders of the Stone-Campbell uh, movement And it has an interesting statement here. Where the scripture speaks, we speak. Where the scriptures are silent, we are silent. You know, in some ways, you could see how that way of thinking could be a bit of a deformation of a reformed regulative principle of worship, even. But but anyway, um, but at the bottom, though, it has a great... The pioneers in the great religious reformation of the 19th century. So this is how members of this movement looked upon these men. Every single, of the, uh, every single one of these men, the two Campbell brothers, Alexandria, and I believe the other's name is Thomas, Walter Scott and Barton Stone were all at one time Presbyterians. They all came from Presbyterian backgrounds and became later, uh, they left the Presbyterian church and became founders of this, this restorationist movement. Okay, but chronologically moving forward, I do want to talk about the plan of union. So this also is related to the westward expansion of the church. So as the church goes west, 
in the in the south, and then up in in northern PA and in uh, in um, upstate New York and places like that, uh, there is difficulty planting churches. Okay, and so one of the things that these men here decided to do to remedy that problem were to to compose this idea, this plan of union between the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists in New England. So the plan of union is the brainchild of um, this, this man on the end, John Blair Smith, who previously had been one of the presidents of Hampton Sydney College um, and had gone up north and became at one point the president of a college named Union College, as well as Mr. Knott here. I never can pronounce his name. Um, Evelette, yeah, or some, something, Eli Follett. Uh, not. Uh, he's a Congregationalist minister, and these two men become friends, and they concoct the idea for joining the churches together for the purpose of church planning. If anybody's familiar with like Acts 29, I like to think of this as like the first Acts 29 network. Um, you know, we're going to ignore our denominational distinctives, or distinctives, and then we're going we're gonna to throw our lots in and try to plant as many churches as we can. Uh, you can see how that could eventually cause problems. Now, the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians are very close to each other. And when the, the Puritan Congregationalists who, who came to settle New England, if, if these guys still had the same theological uh, kind of point of view, then it wouldn't have been perhaps as big of an issue. Uh, but they didn't. And we'll talk about that in just a second. They didn't at all. They had already began uh, to downgrade in New England, and that wasn't really taken into consideration um, as this plan was was hatched. But I have Jonathan Edwards Jr. up here because he's the man who uh, presents the plan in 1801 to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. Now, we talk about celebrity, and I think to myself, if I had to get someone to present something that I wanted to pass the General Assembly... Who could I find to present it? And Jonathan Edwards Jr. has got to be a pretty, that's, that's got to be a pretty good, uh, a pretty good guy to put up there. And so he does, he presents the plan of union and it, and it does pass. And um, the plan was not haphazard. It was actually quite well worked out. There was a, an, an elaborate plan for how uh, congregational churches could call Presbyterian ministers, how congregational ministers could go to Presbyterian churches, and there was a whole system worked out in which the uh, associations, which are the ministerial communions of congregationalists, would be able to discipline their ministers and things like that, and the presbyteries would be able to discipline their ministers. It, it, was, it was not completely just thrown together. There was some planning uh, put in place to seek to um, make this possible. But the real, the real thing that, that undermines it is something called the new divinity. It doesn't undermine it, actually. It leads to great problems in the Presbyterian church. So here we have Samuel Hopkins, the father of the new divinity, or what's sometimes called the New England theology. Sometimes it's called the New Haven theology, I think, as well. It's called a lot of different things. So, uh, my favorite title for it, actually, is Consistent Calvinism. Anytime you have somebody say something like that, you know, consistent Calvinism, you know, biblical Lutheranism, what, whatever it happens to be, you know, whatever it is, it's not the thing that it says it is. And consistent Calvinism is certainly not what the New England theology produced. 
These, these guys were rejecting, for instance, the imputation of Adam's guilt, uh, traditional reform views of original sin. Uh, their understanding of the election was quite deformed. Um, and it was, it was basically what we would say today is some form or fashion of Arminianism. Uh, at best, it was an evangelical Arminianism. Sometimes it was a more skeptical, kind of proto-liberal uh, Arminianism that was heading towards Socinianism even. Uh, so the, these are not guys who you want to, you know, give free reign to preach in your churches. But to what extent the Presbyterians understood how affected or how infected the Congregationalists were with this thought, I, I think is, is a bit of an open question. Some of them certainly were, but uh, some of them probably, probably weren't and just thought this was a good way to, to plant churches. And what they did was accidentally kind of let the wolf in the hen house, as to say, so... So here is Father of the New Divinity. Okay, like I said, I'm really trying to move quickly today, so you guys can stop me if you want to ask a question or something like that, but I'm trying to catch up for the, the dragging that I've been doing for Tim's sake, if nothing else. Uh, I do want to talk then, continuing to move forward chronologically, about the Cumberland Presbyterians. So the Cumberlands, you can probably tell from the name, right, uh, come from Kentucky. Uh, the Cumberland Presbytery was a presbytery in Kentucky that was being highly influenced uh, by this Second Great Awakening style of revivalism. Uh, and they were fully embracing this. Well, perhaps not fully. There were some men in the presbytery that were actually quite concerned about it. Uh, and, and what eventually happens is that there's, there's concern and conflict in the presbytery to the point where the Synod of Kentucky really doesn't know what to do about it. So what they do is they end up reorganizing the presbytery. And I actually think the presbytery kind of takes it upon themselves to do this. And Tim might be able to add more to this. I'm not sure. But uh, basically what happens is they they eventually reorganize themselves so that everybody in the presbytery is a revivalist. And that allows them then to kind of go forward unhampered and do all the things that they wanted to do before. That, that reorganization happens in 1810. Interestingly, the Synod and the General Assembly don't really acknowledge this. So if you were to go read a, a Cumberland Presbyterian book on their history, they would say we start in 1810. But the GA doesn't really kind of acknowledge their independent existence until, um, let's see here, much later. Uh, Hmm. I don't have it on my sheet, unfortunately. But it's probably 20 years later or so the General Assembly gets around to saying, hey, uh, these guys really aren't part of us anymore. And they, they kind of acknowledge that. But like I said, they, they have free reign in the Presbytery at this point. Before, the, the kind of old school Presbyterian men who were present um, had been keeping them from doing certain things they wanted to do. They would give them a lot of trouble when they tried to ordain men who rejected the Westminster Confession. Um, and things like that. They were, they were really trying to clamp down on that kind of stuff. But without those guys there to kind of keep them in check, they, just, they went full on ahead with everything they wanted to do. And what they did is eventually uh, revise the Confession of Faith to become basically an Arminian document. And they did that in 1814. Yes, and it's in 1825 in response to their continued distancing themselves from the, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of the United States. So the General Assembly eventually says these people have no standing uh, in the Kentucky Senate or in the General Assembly at all. Um, but the, the Cumberlands become, um, 
They become Armenian Presbyterians who are influenced by the Second Great Awakening. That's what they become. Um, and there are still Cumberland Presbyterians today. Uh, it caused me a little bit of heartburn, actually. When I was in the, the military, I had to drive quite a ways to go to a PCA church. But right outside the gate, the main gate of post, here lay the only Cumberland Presbyterian congregation I had ever seen in my entire life. And I used to think, of course, the only Presbyterians around are, are the Cumberlands. Um, but the Cumberlands uh, did grow quite rapidly in the early days in Kentucky and, and in throughout the, the western portion of the United States. Later, they continued to spread, and they continue as an independent body for some time. Eventually, the main body of them, at least, is actually going to merge back with the PCUSA, which tells you more about the PCUSA than it does about the Cumberlands. Um, but we'll see that uh, later on. also want to note that it's in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in 1889... Uh, that we first see a, a Presbyterian church ordain a woman. This is her work, Miss Woosley here, Shall Women Preach? The question answered. Um, she was ordained by the Cumberland Presbytery. Uh, then, they re- <laughs> then the Synod refused to acknowledge her at different times. Anyway, they struggled back and forth for a while, but eventually she's allowed to continue to minister. So if you ever wonder, when did Presbyterians first go that direction? Well, it was the Cumberlands, and it was, in, it was in 1889. Interestingly, as we start to think about Finney, uh, we'll see similar tendencies in the north happening a little bit before this, actually, in the congregational uh, churches. But I want to note something about this. I, I didn't just put that here to pick on women preachers. Um, we can understand why they're doing this if we think about the way they think about Christianity for a moment. There, there might be two kind of words that mark revivalistic Christianity. The one would be, no doubt, pietism, which is like a heavy emphasis on religious experience. But the other is pragmatism. They're extremely pragmatic. And the chief, you know, the chief among them is going to be Finney in this regard. But we're already seeing how that tendency affects the church here with people like the Cumberlands. Because from all accounts, this lady could preach a better sermon than I'll ever be able to preach. I mean, she could do it. She was excellent, great orator. You know, she was probably preaching the gospel, largely. And what did they do? I mean, they were like, well, she's able to do it. Why not let her do it? It's pragmatic. But that's one of the key things that you have to understand about Second Great Awakening is it's extraordinarily pragmatic. And we'll see that more later. Okay. But there is some good news in the early 1800s. Sorry to... I, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm maybe teaching the most depressing possible class you could ever have on American Presbyterianism. I don't know what that says about my personality. I could blame it on Tim, but it's gotten darker as I've written it, I think. So anyway... Um, so here we do have, in 1812, the formation of Princeton Seminary. And this is something we can celebrate. So this is not Princeton College. This is a separate institution. Uh, Princeton Seminary starts here in 1812 with two professors, Archibald Alexandra and Samuel, uh, not Samuel Davies. Oh, my goodness. I'm going crazy here. Samuel Miller. Man, sorry about that. 
So I'm having a bad day when I can't remember the founding professors of Princeton Seminary. That's, that's, a, that's a scary thing for Matthew Ezel. Um, but so these two men, uh, particularly uh, Miller, uh, realized the need for a Presbyterian seminary in the context of the day. They, they realized that the colleges that were educating ministers were not doing a good enough job. Um, and we can probably see some of that in some of the things that we've been talking about. So education has been an issue in American Presbyterianism since the very beginning. We, we talked about the log college and how that affected things. And you had men being mentored uh, by ministers, and that's basically how they would, they would be educated for the ministry. A lot of times, especially on the frontier, you would have guys just sit under a minister in the area who was able to teach them, and, you know, the results varied. So, for instance, Charles Finney is educated in this way by a Presbyterian minister, right? And Finney didn't get his theology ex nihilo. In part, he got it from his mentor, who ironically went to Princeton. But, uh, so you see the need for some sort of consistent educational institution. There's even been, this is kind of a perennial issue, actually, and, and there's even talks sometimes, for instance, in the OPC about the fact that we don't have a denominational seminary. And that colors a denomination because you have men going to different institutions. So you have men with different emphases. You know, you've got a guy who goes to Mid-America. You've got a guy who goes to Greenville. You've got a guy who goes to RTS. And all of those seminaries have slightly different uh, emphases. And, and, and it can make for an interesting situation where you have men in presbyteries who don't really line up neatly together. Or at least they're not cookie cutters. And by having a denominational seminary, that, that solves some of that kind of a problem. It, it makes everybody kind of come into conformity to each other because they all have the same professors. They're all taught from the same textbooks and things like that. They all have the same background. It makes things easier, and it also makes things a little bit easier to vet candidates because when you have a candidate who comes with a recommendation from, from Princeton, for instance, you can say, okay, well, we know Miller, we know Alexandria, or we know Alexander, and these are... These are good guys. You can kind of be a little bit more cautious or a little bit more um, uh, kind, maybe, (laughs) with them when they come in. Um, I do want to say something about the literature that Old Princeton produced. Now, this is not... When we speak about Old Princeton, we really really speak about Princeton up until the time when when Machen and, and the others who leave to start Westminster leave. You know, Machen himself thought that Old Princeton ended whenever B.B. Uh, Warfield died. Uh, but this is the very beginning of the, the era which we call Old Princeton. I do want to say something about some of the books because they're, they're absolutely fantastic, really. Some of these, these men are very good uh, theologians and they're great, they're great writers. I have here Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexandria. You can think, I mean, you know, it should be kind of obvious why somebody would want to write a book like this. Uh, this is a very cautious book, and it's a very good book. He does an excellent job in here of, of talking about Christian experience biblically, particularly in the context in which he's laboring. I mean, you can think this is 1812, which means that all around him and involved in the Presbyterian Church, we have men who are advocating a, a real, I use the word enthusiasm in a, um, in a theological sense, like almost an Anabaptistic kind of fanaticism that's going on in the Presbyterian church and areas. And so, so uh, Alexander is trying to, to rein some of that in and give us b- biblical parameters 
through which we can uh, vet our Christian experiences. Similar in some ways to, to Edwards' religious affections in that way. Um, particularly if you're interested at some point in becoming a church officer, Thoughts on Public Prayer by Samuel Miller. It's an absolutely fantastic book, as well as his work on the ruling elder. Very, very helpful. And he, um, actually, one of his works that has been out of print for a number of years was just reprinted on Presbyterianism. Um, so he has a, a little short book on the principles and the history of Presbyterianism. That's also a very good and, and, and is very available uh, now in a way that it hasn't been in the past. But these are the men who are going to shape Princeton Seminary. And let me go further. Princeton Seminary is the institution more than any other that's going to shape the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how many of you are aware of that or not, but really, and, and Mark Knoll, wonderfully, he has an essay on this. He's, a, he's a, quite a famous church historian, teaches at Notre Dame, I believe now. But he, he has a wonderful essay on Old Princeton and the character of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Many of the men who started the OPC had been men who were involved in Princeton Seminary. And, of course, we see that line going to Westminster as well. And, of course, these are parallel things in history. Westminster Seminary and the OPC, they they go together. And this style of Presbyterianism, which is going to develop and continue to mature, it's going to kind of bring forth theologians such as Charles Hodge and Benjamin Warfield and all of the other Hodges, uh, uh, Casper Whisper Hodge, for instance, all, all of these men and their thinking, that's what's really going to influence uh, the OPC, which is a desire to resist uh, the, the revivalism on the one hand as well as what's kind of come to be called the new school theology, which has its origins in some ways in what we've already seen with the New England theology, a desire to resist these Arminianizing tendencies in the Presbyterian Church and to hold fast to the Reformed Confession and biblical Christianity. That is going to shape Princeton, and then in turn, old Princeton will shape the OPC in much the same way. So we we do need to note that before we move on from talking about old Princeton. It's also, we mentioned uh, Hampton-Sydney College last time, and I mentioned that it was important to the founding of Princeton Seminary. Uh, Archibald Alexander had been the president of Hampton-Sydney College previously. He's from Virginia. He's a Southerner. And Princeton would continue to have a Southern um, leaning, really, its whole history. It, was, it had Southern sympathies. Warfield was a con- from Kentucky. Uh, Machen, of course, from, from Baltimore, uh, and considered himself a Southerner, had roots, and was actually a member of the Southern Presbyterian Church. So Princeton also has that stream of Presbyterianism flowing into it. And I do want to note that because I'm from North Carolina. And now I'll move on. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right, so this is not something that you would probably hit on your average trip through American Presbyterian history, but I, I want to point it out. Uh, John Chavis, uh, the man pictured here, is the first African-American ordained to the ministry in the Presbyterian Church in America. John Chavis is a North Carolinian. He was born in Oxford, North Carolina, he was a freedman. He fought in the Revolutionary War. He was later tutored, it looks like, I don't think we can be sure about this, but we think he was tutored by John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon actually tutored a number of black men who had become ministers in the Presbyterian Church. Kind of an interesting thing to note. Uh, but John Chavis came to Raleigh after being ordained in, uh, in the early 1800s. Let me make sure I have this year right because it's 
there are conflicting accounts of this. I tried to track down the most stable number I could. Yeah, it looks, it looks like, from what we can tell, he was ordained by the Lexington Presbytery, that's Lexington, Virginia, in 1801. Okay, which, by the way, that tells you something about the state of the South in the early 1800s. The first black Presbyterian minister is ordained in Virginia. You probably wouldn't have guessed that, but, but it is the case. And he's a North Carolinian. But anyway, Chavis is ordained. He, he ministers for a time in, in Virginia. And then he comes back to North Carolina where he settles in Raleigh. And in Raleigh, he starts a school where he teaches both blacks and whites until the, the 1830s. Now, does anybody know what might cause race relations to go downhill in the 1830s? Nat Turner's Slave Rebellion. Okay? So there's a slave rebellion that happens in, in Virginia. And when that happens, things begin to deteriorate quickly uh, for freed black men in particular, uh, like John Chavis. And the state of North Carolina actually makes it illegal uh, for blacks to be involved in education in the late 1830s. And so he has to leave. His, his license to teach is revoked. And he's asked to, uh, to leave Raleigh. So he leaves Raleigh at that point, and he makes his way back to, to Lexington, Virginia. Interestingly, the Presbytery of Lexington thought that a disservice had been done to John Chavis. And they actually paid for him and his wife to live, even though he didn't have um, any charge that I know of. I believe it was also illegal at that point for blacks to preach in Virginia as well as in North Carolina. And so he was back in Virginia, uh, not laboring, uh, but living there for a time. At some point, it seems that he began to break the law and go ahead and start educating other black people. And we do not know exactly how he died, but at least some reports are that he was beaten to death uh, by, by whites who were enraged by this and then buried in a shallow grave. We still don't know where his grave is, actually. But interestingly enough, if you're an old Raleigh person, you, you probably know about John Chavis Memorial Park, which is here in Raleigh. And it is a park dedicated to the first African-American Presbyterian minister and educator. Um, very interestingly, uh, if you, who's been to Pullen Park? Okay, so during segregation, there was something called separate but equal. Pullen Park was built for the whites. John Chavis was built for the blacks. And so it looks a lot like, you know, they have the train. You see all, all the things that you might expect at Pullen. They're, they're, they're kind of the parallel park uh, to Pullen Park. And interestingly, um, this was a very important park. I did some reading on this. Before segregation ended, this was a, kind of like a really a hot spot for, uh, for people to meet up, which I thought was really interesting. And John Chavis is very um, highly thought of in the African-American community. Matter of fact, one of his descendants, until just recently, she passed away, but she had been a professor at, at uh, Shaw University or St. Augustine, one of, the, one of the historically black colleges here in Raleigh. I can't remember which one. Um, but she had writ- she's written a few things about him. Very, very interesting stuff. But there we have uh, an interesting point in American Presbyterian history uh, as well as an interesting point in North Carolina Presbyterian history. So that's John Chavis. He actually did write some things, and I, I've been trying to figure out if I can't get a hold of some of those and look at them. But... I've gotten myself out of sync. That's not unusual. Here's a picture of Hampton, Sydney, and Archibald Alexandra. Here's Samuel Miller. And here's the man of the hour, or the man of the next four minutes. Um, Charles Finney. 
ordained a Presbyterian minister by the Presbytery of St. Lawrence in upstate New York in 1824. Our proudest product uh, as American Presbyterians here. (laughs) Uh, Yes, so Finney. Finney was examined in 1823 by the Presbytery of St. Lawrence. He was asked at that point if he received the Westminster Standards, to which he responds something like, he really hadn't studied them, but yes. Um, And that was okay with the Presbytery. His mentor himself was a graduate of Princeton, and he had become a follower of the new divinity of Samuel Hopkins and others. Uh, He said at one point that the rigid Calvinism of the old school Presbyterians was insufficient and altogether an abomination to God. It's a strict Presbyterian for you. Um, I I had the sneaking suspicion that once he did read it, he wasn't impressed. <laughs> yes. I don't know how long it took him after he was ordained to actually take a look at it. But um, yes, that's right. Uh, Finney began to develop what is come to be known as the new measures. So new measures include all the things that you would expect at a, at a revival meeting today, or maybe not today. I think, I think that is maybe, I'm not sure how off, how typical those things are anymore, but I mean, I still remember being a kid and seeing, like, tent revival meeting stuff set up in, like, fields. That's rural life, I guess, to a certain extent, but this stuff still does happen. And the new measures are going strong, I I assure you. In small towns all around the United States, you will see things like altar calls, right? You will see things like the anxious bench. The anxious bench is where someone comes to sit and I've seen this happen many times, if they're feeling convicted for their sin or perhaps they, they feel like they might want to confess Christ, what, make a decision for Christ, however they say that, they'll sometimes reserve a seat here for them and the preacher will kind of specifically preach to them and, and kind of goad them into seeking to make a confession. Um, obviously, we, we talked about the altar calls. He's also, this is also uh, one of the situations where we, we end up seeing women becoming more and more involved in, in the worship service. Uh, again, very pragmatic. So, uh, you know, in his opinion, there were women who, who could pray more eloquently than men, or, uh, so he would stick them in the pulpit, you know. Um, and he began to do um, really all sorts of things like this. And Finney eventually does leave the Presbyterian Church. He goes and he pastors uh, Oberlin Congregational Church for a time, and he teaches theology, actually. That's a, that's a disturbing thought. At, um, at Oberlin College, which is, I think, notoriously a liberal college today, actually. But anyway, uh, and, and in 1951, he's appointed the president of that college, which he thought was great because it gave him a forum to advocate for social reforms. Towards the end of his life, he became increasingly concerned about social issues. And his focus really turned from conversionism of some sort, revivalism of some sort, into advocating for things like uh, temperance, women's suffrage, and abolitionism. So towards the end of his life, he becomes more and more social in his his uh, orientation. I can say that word at some point. Finney produced a variety of books and articles. His lectures on revivals and religion is a manual on how to lead revivals, and you can go and find that today. Uh, thousands of preachers have uh, seek to use this as the basis of their ministry. Uh, his lectures on systematic theology are uh, teach his special brand of what he called Arminianized Calvinism, um, basically not Calvinism at all. 
But that takes us to, to 1837, and this is where we end. As you can see, a church that has Archibald Alexandra, Samuel Miller, and men like this on one side, and Finney on the other, and people like him, he leaves eventually, but many people like him stay. That church is not going to hold together for much longer. And in 1837, that, that split comes. Uh, it comes along the lines of what we call the old school, new school split. And basically everything that we've talked about here was part of the reason for that split. So the plan of union, which had introduced uh, liberal theology, New, new England theology into the church, was part of that. Revivalism was part of that. And then lastly, uh, social issues became a big part of that. Temperance, abolitionism, things like this. The new side tended to be aggressive in advocating for those positions, and the old side was kind of mixed. So you had, obviously we'll see later, old-siders who defended slavery. You also had old-siders who were anti-slavery, but who wanted to see a peaceable solution to the problem, as opposed to the abolitionists who wanted it to end today, no matter what it cost. Um, you had old-siders, or old-school old folks who were okay with drinking alcohol. You had some who were pro-temperance. Things like this are going to exist together in the old school, but not so much in the new school. So, okay, I will end there. I'm a little bit late, but we are basically called up to where we're supposed to be, so I'm going to claim victory and, uh, and get out of here. <laughs>